0: Well, Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to church. Happy New Year! Hey, how many of you are a type A, you are goal setters, this weekend it's been like Christmas 2.0 for you, you're having a great time. Yeah, okay, now let me ask this, how many of you are annoyed by people like that? Look at what a diverse group that Jesus is gathering here. I think, I think that right there is awesome. Um... Now, you can probably tell which camp I fall in, Uh, (laughs) but here's the deal. I come this morning with good news regardless of your personality type, that whether this is the start of a new year or just a new morning for you, uh, what the Bible tells us is God's mercies are new every morning. Um, the, The gospel tells us that Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty, that the spirit is on the move, and that means anything can happen, and that's the kind of thing we can all get excited about. And so uh, with that said, if you've got a Bible, why don't you grab it and turn to the book of Daniel? Um, Because this morning, um, because it's a a new year or a new day or however you're looking at it, Jesus is on the move and we're going to start a new book of the Bible. You excited? We're going to be starting the book of Daniel. And um, it's about two-thirds of the way through your Old Testament. I'll give you a moment to get there. Um, The book of Daniel, I'll just set it up for you this way. Uh, It was written during a period of history known as the exile among God's people. Uh, This uh, was a period that began in 605 BC uh, when the nation of Babylon uh, came in and destroyed uh, the city of Jerusalem, destroyed God's temple, carried God's people away. Uh, This is a really traumatic period uh, in the history of God's people where they go from living in a culture um, that is shaped. Uh, really around the God of the Bible and his way of doing things uh, to being carried away to a culture uh, that's really in opposition to the God of the Bible where everywhere they look, they're being indoctrinated from entertainment to the marketplace to the universities. Uh, morality, they're, they're in this culture that's it's a pluralistic society. I don't know how to say it any way other than that where Israel had one God, Babylon had lots of different gods. And so in Babylon, when they move over to Babylon, morality is just kind of in flux. There's all these new gods vying for power, and so things are constantly being uh, redefined. And really, the only unforgivable sin in Babylon is to pray to the singular God of the Bible and to offer worship to the one true God. Does any of this sound familiar? Um, Okay, and and I should add one more thing that's not really as relevant for us today, but it's important to the storyline of the book, and that is uh, in Babylon they had a series of godless narcissistic leaders that were making life works for everybody. (laughs) See, this is why we say the Bible isn't an old book, it's a timeless book written to address the problems of every age, Because, um, look, I'll I'll just kick off the series with some real talk with you. Um, I am a native Californian, and I love this place. Um, There was a time where we were sent in exile to the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) And I'm so glad to be in a place where it makes the news when it rains here, where we're all freaking out, like, this is amazing. Um, I'm so glad to be back in California. But if I'm being really honest with you, I've had days... Where I've started to wonder do I really want to raise my girls in a place like this? Um, now, don't worry, we're not going anywhere. Because I've been reading the book of Daniel. And and this is why I want to share this with you because, guys, this book is written for the day and age in which we find ourselves, for the shifting cultural sands under which we find ourselves. This is why I want to share with you because I don't think I'm alone in feeling that way. And so if you've ever felt discouraged by the shifting moral climate around us, If you've ever felt like, I don't know how to be faithful to Jesus when kind of all the default cultural assumptions about faith are changing. If you've ever thought, I want to grab my kids and move to Montana before all the Californians drive up the housing prices, the book of Daniel is for you. Is anyone ready to dive in? All right. Daniel chapter 1 starts this way. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed them in the vessels of the treasuries of his God." Um, So we are two verses in, and already we're reading something shocking here. Um, Let me give you some of the historical backdrop so that you can track with what's going on here. Um, There's a lot of rich historical accounts of what's going on in the world at this point in history. Um, What we know from inside and outside the Bible is at this point in history that Babylon is a nation that's really kind of on the rise in the world scene, uh, especially in this part of the world. And um, really, under this king, Nebuchadnezzar, they reach the peak of their power, where just a few years before these events, uh, the nation of Babylon conquers the nation of Assyria, who was the world power at that time. And they take them down. So Babylon, right before this, they become the dominant power in the region. And under the leadership of this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, they just continue on this tear ...through the region to take over, to become a regional power. Um, They tear through the region, even taking territories that not even the mighty Assyrian army could conquer. Um, If you know your Bible, the Assyrians tried to conquer the city of Jerusalem... Um, They they tried, but what happened to Assyria is the same thing that happened to Egypt and every other mighty nation that came against the people of Israel. Uh, They found that no matter how mighty their military force, it would always end badly for them because the nation of Israel, they had the living God on their side. And, And this is really the story of the Old Testament, that God chose to draw near to this one group of people, this really kind of unimpressive group, uh, nothing super impressive, not, certainly not as mighty as the Babylonians, but God try, chooses to draw near to this group of people and to be with them and to bless them uh, in order to make them a blessing to the rest of the world. We saw this in our Genesis series that God's plan to bless the world is to be near to this man Abraham and his family that would become the nation of Israel. And to through relationship with him, they would flourish and be so blessed that their lives would be a picture to the rest of the world as to how good life with God is and how to come into relationship with God. God chose Israel to draw near to them and to be with them to make them a blessing All the peoples on the earth. This is why no one could ever defeat them militarily. Because God had a purpose for these people. And and so that was the the mighty plan. that, That they would be with God. That their life would come into harmony with how he designed it. And that the world would come from all over and say, why is your society so just? Why are the poor not suffering? Why are the weak not being pushed down? Why are things so joyful in this place? And that happens for like a second under King Solomon's reign. Where uh, kings and queens come from all over and they say, what's going on here? But the problem is, um, the people of Israel were a lot like you and me. Um, Where they had good days, where they trusted God and everyone had a great time. And the queen of Sheba, she'd come in and say, man, I got to take what you're doing here back to my homeland. Tell me about your God. But then they would have bad days where they would break faith with God. They bring great brokenness into their lives, pain into the world. And, and I say this to you all the time, but um, sin is not the issue, hard-heartedness is. Because C- God can always deal with our sin. We, we see this in the Bible, this is ultimately the point of the cross, that God can deal with our deepest, darkest sin, that there's no sin with more power than his cross and his ability to forgive. Sin is not the issue, repentance is. It's, it's the hardness of heart that says, I don't want to change. I don't want to be forgiven. I don't want to see this as the problem or the issue. It, and, and this is what happened in Israel, that, that they went from um, being like Father Abraham who had good days and bad days to where the bad days would just pile up to where they began to harden their hearts where they just became numb to it where they were no longer repenting for their sin, they were no longer sorry for grieving the heart of God, they just gave themselves more and more to their sin. And so God sent prophets to his people. He said, if you continue down this path, if you keep hardening your heart, man, I'm not, I'm not going to keep blessing you. I've blessed you to make you a blessing to the nations. And if you are going to be as wicked and unjust and evil as all the people around you, I will scatter you and send you off into exile. If you're not going to be the blessing that I've called you to be, I'm going to send you off into exile. Uh, God warned them over hundreds and hundreds of years. But they continued to harden their hearts. They continued in their rebellion. It got worse and worse and worse to where the Bible tells us that the evil in Israel was greater than the evil of all the nations around them. And so in 605 B.C., God keeps his promise. He gave them up to the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's a challenging thought that, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar's responsible. He was on this uh, expansion campaign for the glory of his empire. But ultimately what the Bible is saying is underneath Nebuchadnezzar's choices is the sovereign choice of God to execute judgment on his people. And and that's a challenging idea. If that challenges you right now, think about how much it would have challenged them 2,600 years ago to hear this written about them. But but I want you to see this. What we are seeing from the very outset of this book is we're learning about who this God is. We're learning that he means what he says. And, and, And look, I know there's some of you, you want me to move on right now. Um, you want to look away, you want me to get to the encouraging news, because I said at the top, I've got good news for you, and you want me to get to that. But I can't give you the good news until I tell you the bad news. I can't encourage you until you understand the problem that we're in, because it'll just be news if you don't understand what's going on here. And I think we're looking right at the problem of our day in this text. I think the great problem in the church today is that we play games with God. God. We don't take him seriously. We don't take his words seriously. We don't take his warnings seriously. We don't take his holiness seriously. Where he tells us things and we go, yeah, he doesn't really mean that doesn't expect me to actually do that. And so we busy ourselves with all of this social activity because that's more culturally acceptable to, to do things that our culture would applaud that would overlap with the Bible. And we ignore the parts that don't overlap with our culture. We ignore the parts of our life that we don't want to address, and we just busy ourselves with religious activity. And we say, Man, as long as I'm going to church, as long as I'm driving a hybrid and not doing anything really terrible like polluting the environment, God will be cool with it. And we play these games with God, and I it just, and we wonder why it feels like the power has left the church of Jesus Christ. We wonder why it feels like the blessing of God has left us and that the world is going crazy around us and it feels like we're in exile. Might it be, I just want to ask as we get in, might it be that we, like the people of Israel, have hardened our hearts to his voice? We have picked and chosen what we like in his word. We've played these games where we act like everything is fine when we're really ignoring what the Holy Spirit's been saying to us all along. Might it be that we are in a similar position as Israel? Something to consider. Verse 3. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Um. So we talked about God, the main character of this story. Let's now talk about this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, we're going we're to learn a lot about him in this book. He's one of the main characters in the book. But we see some key things here that we need to know about this guy. And um, what we see in these verses is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he takes things. He takes nations that don't belong to him. He takes riches that don't belong to them. He takes uh, treasures out of a city, like he takes the things out of God's temple that were a source of honor and identity for that city. And he takes them for himself and he puts them in the treasuries of his own God. This is a man, he's not a giver, he is a taker. He takes nations, he takes wealth, and he takes people. What we read is after defeating the armies of Jerusalem that he takes uh, the culture makers out of Jerusalem. He takes the good-looking people, the young people, the people that everyone in the culture would look to for cues as to what we should value. So he takes the, uh, uh, the Megan and Harrys. He takes the Biebers and the Swifts. Uh, who, who else am I missing from our culture today??: Some of you are afraid to say it. Do you say the king? The kings, yes. Uh, So I'm thinking England. I'm like, well, actually, but man, these are young people. That's, I don't know. But some of you are like, move on, pastor. All right. He, He takes the culture makers of the day. Whoever people would look to. But they're the young culture makers. They're the ones on the rise. I think maybe the equivalent in our day is the TikTok influencers. He takes the people with millions of followers that everyone is looking to. And he, he marches them on this 900-mile journey north towards the city of Babylon. Um, and when they get there, um, I, I can only imagine the sight. Uh, Babylon was the largest city in the world at this point in history. Uh, it, the population was in excess of 200,000 people. Um, Which maybe you think, ah, that's not really that big. I mean, like, Oakland's twice that size. Um, But at this point in history, that is a massive, massive place. Um, You probably know this. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world is found in the city of Babylon. It's the hanging gardens of this guy Nebuchadnezzar. This was a massive city. This was an impressive city. Uh, And so these culture makers, uh, young and influential as they were, when they get to Babylon, they have never seen anything like this. They come to this incredible place. They hear a new language. They hear a new culture. And when they get there, um, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he, he wines and dines them. Um, we'll talk about this more next week, but literally that's what he's doing with the food and the wine. He, he's whining and dining the culture makers. And, and, and then um, he puts them in a three-year program where they learn the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Now now before you're like, golly, Pat, this doesn't sound that bad. Kind of sounds like he took them out of their little small hometown and brought them into a big impressive city and gave them a free ride through college. Um, so before... You think that let me just point out a couple of things from our text um number one it says that he put them in the care of the chief eunuch what that means is that he literally took away their ability to have children are you tracking with me on that one these are young people with their whole life ahead of them and he literally okay that's too on the nose but we'll go there now he crushes their hopes and dreams literally I don't care how good the food and the steak and the wine is. No amount of steak is worth that. So, so he, he makes eunuchs of these young men. And then number two, can I just point out um, his intentions aren't pure with these guys. It's not like he just wants them to have a great time and get the best education possible. And the reason we know that is because the Bible tells us about the new names he gives these guys. So out of all the people he brings in, the narrative zooms in on four guys in particular. And and these are the guys that we're going to be learning from over the next several weeks. And so uh, let's go ahead and meet these guys. I've got a slide here that will show you their names um, for those of you that are visual. The, the, The first one is Daniel. He's the guy the book is named after. Um, Do we have any Daniels here this morning? No. Okay. All right. Danielle, if you're watching online, I looked this up. Danielle is the female form of Daniel. Do we have any Danielles in the room? All right. Uh, Anyone have a loved one named Daniel? Do you know what the name means? God is my judge. Oh, the slide's behind me. I'm like, I don't know if you just knew that or knew it, but way to go. Danny means God is my judge. And, and, and so Nebuchadnezzar meets this young boy. He sees all the followers he has on TikTok. He's like, I've got plans for you, but I ain't calling you that. We're going to call you Belteshazzar. Any of you know any Belteshazzars? Nah, it's a dumb name. Uh, what it means is Nebo protect his life. Nebo is one of the many Babylonian gods. He's the Babylonian god of wisdom. Uh, So so that's Daniel. He changes his name. uh, And he changes the name of his three friends, too. Hananiah, whose name means Yahweh is gracious, gets renamed to Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, which is another one of the Babylonian gods. He's the moon god. Uh, Mishael, whose name means who is what God is, gets renamed to Meshach, whose name means who is like a coup. So, so a couple of them are named after a coup here. And then finally, Azariah, uh, his name means Yahweh is a helper. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, not going to call you that. We're going to call you Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. You see what he's doing? These guys had good Hebrew names. Uh, Names that I imagine that their daddy and their mama had strong debate around who got to name the kid. If it's anything like our house. These guys had good Hebrew names that spoke to the glory of the God of the Bible. All four of them. And when they get to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar gives them new names that speak to the glory of his God's. And, and think, about, think about the power a name has. Um, any of you have a loved one that has a nickname for you? Who has a nickname here that a loved one will call you? I'm not going to ask you for it, but anyone have a nickname? Yeah. Um, when they call you that name, doesn't that evoke something in you? Doesn't that have power when that name is used? Um, or, or maybe some of you... Uh, You've been called a name not by a loved one. You've been called a name that tears you down. And and think about the power that name has over you. Um, Names have an incredible ability to shape our identity and our understanding of ourselves. This is something that postmodernism actually gets right. That language has an incredible ability to shape our understanding of reality. That names in particular have this power over us that the more that we hear it, the more that it is used, it begins to rewire our understanding of ourselves. This is why, by the way, when God shows up in people's lives in the Bible, he gives them new names. This is why he comes to Abram and he's like, hey, I like what your parents were going for, Uh, But I'm going to give you such a new identity, a new life, you can't have the same name. So let's keep something of that and let's make you Abraham. Um, This is why he comes to Saul and says, Saul, that's a great name, but you're killing Christians and I've got a new plan for you. I'm going to have you making Christians and writing Bibles. So let's go from Saul to Paul. This is why God gives people new names his names speak to our sense of identity and Nebuchadnezzar is doing the same thing here This guy Nebuchadnezzar, he thinks he's a god. He thinks he has ultimate power. And so like a bad, phony, knockoff version of God, he goes around renaming people, giving them new identities. And in order to try to do this, he's trying to get these guys to stop thinking like Israelites and to start thinking like Babylonians. Because he knows if he can get Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift to start thinking like a Babylonian, then all of their followers will follow in suit. And so he knows if I can get the culture makers to start seeing themselves in a new way and to really embrace the lifestyle of Babylon, then that's going to flow downstream to everyone else in the culture back in Jerusalem. This is the pressure of living in exile right here it's the pressure to assimilate, uh, to take on the values of the surrounding culture, and, and not only just to take them on and to go with the flow, that's never enough. Exile is never just about shut up and go with the flow. It is always a demand to actually begin to receive these values of your, as your own, to begin to see yourself in a new way so that you're not just going with the flow, but that you are beginning to see yourself in a new way and you're beginning to take on the values of the place in which you live. Does that pressure feel familiar to anybody? I mean, we're not even original about it. We use language and names today and words to try to shift values and shift understandings. Anyone felt this pressure to see yourself in a new way and to not go by the name that God gave you, but to go by the name of someone else, to go by what someone else says you need in order to be a valuable person? Anyone feel this pressure? where I think this book is going to encourage us is that pressure has been felt before. We're not the first to go through this cultural moment where people try to change our understanding of our identity. We're not the first. And, and look, we'll talk more about this pressure to assimilate next week. Uh, we'll, 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 this story is going to continue on. Um, it's, it's really incredible. We're going to learn a lot about how to respond to that pressure in a way that's life-giving because there's a very uh, not life-giving way to respond to that pressure that looks tough but it's not faithful. Again, that's next week's message. For today, I just want us to see this. While this might be Nebuchadnezzar's purpose in the exile, while his purpose in carrying them away from Jerusalem is to try to assimilate them to the values of Babylon, God has a very different purpose in mind. Um, and to see that, I want to invite you to flip back a couple of pages to the prophet Jeremiah. Um, so if you're still in Daniel, flip back a few pages to Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, see, when all of this first went down, um, they didn't have the book of Daniel yet. They were living the book of Daniel. And, and so th- is they're trying to make sense of what's going on with all of this what has happened how how is all of this going on they're trying to make sense of all of this um some people in israel uh, here's how they rationalize it they said exile is terrible look at what nebuchadnezzar's doing he's hurting our culture makers he's brainwashing them he's trying to subvert like no this exile is terrible god's not going to let this happen and so they sent these letters to the exiles. They, they claimed, hey, we heard from God. Have you ever had someone do this where they're like, oh, yeah, God told me. And you're like, really? That doesn't sound like God. Oh, They say, oh, God told us that this exile thing is not going to last. He doesn't like it. It's not going to last. You're going to be out of there in a hot minute. So just make a TikTok video. By the time you're done, you'll be out. And... Um, What God does is he raises up this man named Jeremiah, who is a real prophet, to proclaim the true word of God to God's people. So you've got all these cuckoos over here saying, God told me, making stuff up, and God sends a real prophet filled with his Holy Spirit to give the real word of God. And this is what Jeremiah says to the exiles who are hearing these rumors. Maybe the exile wasn't God's idea. Maybe this was just a big oopsie and he'll come clean it up real soon. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse four, we read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have your sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of that city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God tells him twice in those verses. I have sent you there. I wasn't asleep at the wheel when Nebuchadnezzar came to town. I was the one who sent him your way to carry you off into Babylon. And and so what he says, he'll go on in verses 8 and 9 to say, don't listen to the people saying that this is going to be a quick thing. They are liars. He says, I have sent you there. And and I've got a purpose for you there. And so plant a garden. You're going to be there a while. Because gardens take time to grow. Have kids and raise them there. Don't have this temporary mindset where you think you're just going to move on in the next second. Because here's what he's telling them. I have sent you there. You're going to be there a while. This is probably not what the exiles wanted to hear. This is probably a lot like the message I'm delivering this morning. Where you're like, I just want to hear that God's going to change everything like tomorrow. And we're not going to have to live through this. Jeremiah tells them, hey, here's what God said. He said he sent you there on purpose. And and you should plant a garden because you're going to be there a while. But look at why he says God sent him there. Because this is where God's word is always better than our imaginations. All the people in Jerusalem wanted wanted God to say, hey, it was my bad. I shouldn't have let Nebuchadnezzar in. Jesus was on duty. He fell asleep. Sorry. But that's not what he says. He says, I have sent you there. But listen to why I have sent you there. Uh, Verse 11, some of you will know this verse. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That is incredible. What God says is, hey, I haven't sent you there because I'm mad at you. Which is crazy because there's a lot of reasons to be mad at the Israelites at this point in history. Read First and Second Kings this week if you want to see what I'm talking about. These people suck. They were doing evil things and it was all reflecting on God's name and glory. And what he says is I haven't sent you there because I'm mad or I'm done with you and I'm sick of you. I have sent you there to give you a future and a hope. See, here's here's what you've got to know about God. God loves you. He loves you. And because he loves you, he is willing to, at times, allow terrible, crazy things to happen in your life to wake you up from your sin and rebellion. Because sin does not have a future to it. And there is no hope in a life apart from God. God. And so as Israel has hardened their hearts and given themselves to this rebellion, God's response to that, you got to catch this, it's not to say, well, forget you guys, I'm done with you, I'm going to go pick the Americans, and we're going to have a great time. God's response to the rebellion and wickedness of his people is to say, if you won't turn to me and repent and come back to me, then I will send you to a place where you will learn to call on my name. I will send you to a place where you can see how broken and how dangerous and how awful life is apart from me. Because for whatever reason, you forgot that in the promised land. And so I, I am willing to bear the shame to my name that will happen when my temple gets destroyed and everyone thinks Yahweh is this junior varsity God. I'm willing to bear that shame upon myself because I love you too much to let you go down this path that has no future, that has no hope. So he says, this is why I raised up Nebuchadnezzar to carry you out because I wanted to wake you up. I wanted to bring you to a place where you would call on me again. Because here's the gospel. When you call on me, you will find me. It doesn't matter how far you've run. It doesn't matter what identity you've taken on, what culture you've embraced, what life you are living. It doesn't matter how many times you've sat in church and grieved the Holy Spirit and been hard-hearted when He speaking. It does not matter what you have done. If you would turn and call upon his name, he says, you will find me. Here's the picture. God is a father with open arms saying at any time you want to turn and come to me, my arms are open to you. And and not only that, it's not only that his arms are open, but he's saying that I love you enough to sovereignly ordain the course of history to bring you to a place where you would come to your senses so that you could come back to me. This is God's purpose in the exile. He's sending them away from the promised land to wake them up so that he could renew their faith. So he could bring them back to a place like we saw in Father Abraham, like we saw in the Exodus, like we see in King David, like in all their great moments of history. So that he could bring them to a place where they realize that true life is found in him. And if God doesn't go with us, it doesn't matter what we have. This is his purpose in exile. He wants to renew that kind of faith in his people. Because he is that committed to them. That he doesn't just let them go at the first sign of a screw-up. That he pursues and he chases after and he woos to bring them back. And the promise here is that no matter what you've done, if you call on my name, you will find me. So he sends them into exile to renew their faith. And I want you to see this. It's not only their faith. Do you you catch what verse 7 said? He says, to seek the welfare of the city. That word welfare, it's the Hebrew word shalom. Seek the peace of the city, the flourishing, the well-being of the city. Seek the well-being of the city of Babylon. With all of its many gods and pluralism and the wickedness of that society, it, it lacks some shalom, and I've sent you there to bring shalom. See, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's taking these teenagers out of Israel to assimilate them into Babylon. And God's like, that's cute. I'm actually letting you take them so I can send them into your nation to actually bring life to your wicked place. I'm going to send them into your courts. And by the way, that's what we're going to see in the book of Daniel. That this guy Nebuchadnezzar is all full of himself and it causes all sorts of problems in his life and for his people. And Daniel, by being faithful, by calling on the name of God, by doing what he says in this text, becomes a blessing to Nebuchadnezzar to where Nebuchadnezzar will repent of his hard-hearted, wicked foolishness and all of his policies and say Daniel's God is the living God and enshrine it in history to where the, na- the nation will be changed because of these four men we just read about in the text. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's pulling over a fast one on God's people, and God's like, yeah, actually, I'm sending them there to bless your city. He's sent these exiles there to renew their faith, but also to restore their purpose. This is what we see from page one of the Bible on, right? We talk about this all the time here, that we have been created for a relationship with God, and out of an overflow of our relationship with God, we're meant to spread his goodness to the world around us. We're meant to love other people because we have such love of God poured into our hearts. This is how life is meant to be. And the problem with Israel is because they broke relationship with God, they had no love for one another. There was no justice in their society. They were using and abusing one another. And so what God says is, I'm gonna renew you your faith and when i do i'm going to restore your purpose i will make you the blessing to the nations that i promised father abraham you would be i'm going to do it right in that place and we will watch him do it in the pages of the book of daniel Um, the way he says it in the last chapter i just want to read this verse to you because this is where we get the name of this series from when we talk about shining in babylon You read this in Daniel chapter 12 as the whole book is wrapping up. As God is talking about his ultimate purposes for human history. He talks about those that would call on his name and seek him and trust him. Here's my plans for you. It's the plans that bring you a future and hope. It's that you're going to have a relationship with me. And from there, Daniel 12 verse 3 we read, Those who are wise, these are the ones who call on God's name. Well, I'm going to make you shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness and and tell people about my goodness and see people meet Jesus and get saved, well, you know what they're going to be like? They are going to shine like the stars forever. In the midst of a dark and hostile culture, God promises them you can shine in that place, and so can anyone in any hostile culture to follow. You can shine in that place. Does this idea of shining in a dark place sound familiar to anybody? I mean, we did just have Christmas, right? Jesus is the light of the world. And and what is Jesus, the, the true light that comes into the world? What does he say to his people? You are the light of the world. Now, now, don't mishear that. It's like he's the sun and we're the moon. We reflect his light. That's how life is meant to operate. This is what Daniel is prophesying in the end of his book when he says the righteous will shine like the stars above. And the darker the world gets, the brighter the light becomes. Because check this out. This isn't just what God did once in Babylon. This is what God always does. He goes into the heart of darkness. And he shines his light and his glory. And he redeems people from that darkness and gives them a new life and a new name. And through their life, he begins to radiate his life and his love to the world. To where a a new pocket of heaven exists in that place. Isn't this what he did with Father Abraham? Dumb-dumb that thought one wife wasn't enough and so started collecting and just had terrible ideas about life. But in the end goes on to be this mighty figure. That's a model of faith for us all. Isn't this what he did through King David? I'll tell you this. This is what we will see him do through Daniel and his friends in this book. And ultimately, someone said earlier, this is what he does in Jesus. Because you see, God not only gives his people up to exile... But later in the story of the Bible, God will give his own son. He will see a people walking in deep darkness and he will decide that's enough of the darkness. My light's going to shine upon them. And the light of the world is going to step down into darkness. And though the world is dark, the darkness isn't able to overcome it. Jesus will leave his heavenly kingdom, and come down into our broken earth. You want to talk about becoming an exile and leaving a place that's comfortable and familiar and good for a place that's broken and evil? Why don't you talk about leaving heaven and coming to earth? Like this version of the earth, not Genesis 1 and 2 where everyone's running around naked, everything's going great, it's harmony. We're talking this version of the earth where we're all rage all the time. Jesus became an exile. He left his heavenly home. He came to earth. He sought our shalom. He sought our well-being by laying his own life down on the cross and giving his life for us so that he could create in us a new people whose sins are forgiven, who know that God's heart is always open, that we could always come knowing that in him our sins are forgiven, that he makes a new way to be human. That he takes care of the sin, our job is to keep coming back and saying sorry and thanking him for his grace and asking him to change our heart and give us more of that grace to live it out a little more this time. The light of the world steps down into darkness. And he makes a new people to begin to shine his light to the world around. Which that's where you get the famous verse where he says to his people, you are the light of the world. And, and so, look, I, I am well aware that we do not live in the days of Solomon where, like, real talk, we started with real talk, I'll end with real talk. My non-Christian friends aren't coming to me going, can you tell me what the secret to Christians are? Can you tell me about your God? Because, wow, you guys really have life figured out. You guys look like a really loving bunch that really value righteousness and don't put up with any wickedness in your midst. Now, we, we don't live in the days of Solomon. I think we live a lot more in the days of Daniel. Where the walls are torn down, our city is burnt, the temple, like God's name, has been defamed amongst us. And yet, sin is not the issue, repentance is. And what we see time and time again throughout history is where God's people humble themselves. I'm sorry for this thing I've made it I'm sorry for not listening God I want the life that you have I don't want to play games anymore. I want the real you. I want to know the living God. I want to have a relationship with you, not just some religious game I play, where God's people have proclaimed that time and time again, God has met them with acts of renewal like the kind of thing that we will see in the book of Daniel here. And so as we just as we launch into this series, I just want to ask you to consider how do you respond to that truth? Because I believe there is a corporate and a personal response to this for all of us. Uh, corporately, I think there is an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ in our day to say, hey, we've put up with far too much nonsense in our midst for too long. We've covered up too much. We have treated people made in the image of God far too cheaply. We have given the world far too many excuses not to believe in our Jesus. There is I believe a response that we as the people of God can make to this text together. It's something that we can do as Pharaoh's church. It's something that we can do with other churches we partner with to say in this valley that though you might think this is what our God is like, this is what the real living Jesus is like. And so maybe there's some corporate ways that we need to seek him to humble ourselves to repent of any ways that we've become hardened to his voice to us. That's something I want us to be thinking about over the next 11 weeks together, but I also want to encourage you to be thinking about this personally. Um, maybe it can feel really big, like, ah, oh, man, how do we change the world's view of the church? Okay, well, let's start with you. Because you are a member of the body. I am a member of the body, so let's start with me. Let's start with you. Let's start with us. I wonder if there's any area of your life that you have numbed yourself to his voice. Um, I wonder if there's anywhere where he's saying, if you would seek me, you'll find me. You remember when you sought me? You remember how good this was? It's been so long. I wonder if there's anywhere that God might be saying to you, like he did through the prophet Jeremiah. No matter what you've done, my plans for you are to give you a future and a hope because in spite of all the nonsense in your life, I still love you, I'm still for you, and I want to lead you into that future and hope. And so would you come to me this morning? I want to lead you into that. We're going to take some time to respond to this message by coming to the table where we are going to celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for us it is the ultimate banner that says God's arms to us are an open so we don't have to pretend we don't struggle we don't have to harden our hearts and stiffen our neck and pretend we don't have issues the whole point of the cross is God knows you have issues so come repent of the sin because he could deal with it and he can bring you more life if you would only come so what does it look like for us to corporately say God the world is dark But you've said we can shine in this place. And so we want to pursue it together. I don't know what it looks like for us corporately. But I can tell you this. I think it begins with each and every one of us saying, as a member of your body, Jesus, as a member of your church, I want to shine more brightly in this place. And so I need to get your life into me. There's this area of darkness. I know you know about it. And so I need to finally talk to you about this. Because I need to seek you this year. Maybe you're not the type to do New Year's resolutions. What I would say to you is we'll be in this book 11 weeks. Anyone can do something for 11 weeks, right? That's like usually where New Year's resolutions burn out. So don't call it a New Year's resolution unless you like that. But what do you need to practically do to seek him in this series? To invite him and ask him to make his light shine through you in this place. I don't know what it is, but here's what I can promise you from the book of Daniel. If you would seek him, you will find him. And you will find his power to redeem and to restore unmeasured. And he will shine through you in this place. Let's pray and ask him to do it. Father God, I thank you that you do not give up on us. God, I just want to, as a pastor and a Christian, as a part of your church, I just want to say I'm grieved at the state of your church today in our world. And I know you're grieved. God, I feel like the church today is like the temple on fire where people are looking and they are laughing because they think you're not real because we are such a mess. And so God, I ask that you would do the same thing you did in the day of Daniel, that in the midst of our mess, you would meet us with grace, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit without measure, that you would start in this place, that at Fair Oaks with Chad Francis and every person here, you would begin something in us that would begin to pour out your grace into our lives, that would begin to change that narrative. God, don't let us grow weary or hostile with this culture. Let us have your vision that you want to shine light in this culture, and let it start with us. God, help us. Don't let us be thinking about all the issues out there. Help us start with us. Would you send your Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would fall right now and reveal the areas of our life where we need to seek you. Would you help us to believe the gospel is true, that your arms are open to us? Would you meet us powerfully through the table as you've promised to do? Would you make your presence real with us, Jesus, as we now take of your body and your blood? And would you do something powerful in this place that can only be explained by the fact that you are in heaven, you do as you please, and when things look the darkest, that's when you love to get going. Help us in your beautiful name I ask. Amen.